All right, I'm excited about this one because I've been digging into this book, The Four Foundations of Golf, and we've got the author here, John Sherman, on the show. John, super excited to have you here. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Frank. Uh, appreciate you getting the book, digging into it. I know it's long, but uh, hopefully we'll cover one or two nuggets from it today. So appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. There's no way we're going to cover all this today, but I tell you, it's one of those <laughs> ones you pick it up. And look, I, I've read countless books. I've, I've watched a lot of instruction on YouTube. And there's, you know, there's a lot of good stuff out there, but I think you've got a very refreshing take here. And I think it's largely because as somebody who's just an amateur golfer, I'm not getting paid to play golf. You know, uh, I think being able to realize that I can score better without having to change too much with my swing is, is something that's always going to spark my interest. Um, so let's, before we dive into some of the concepts, let's, let's start with a little bit of background on yourself. So you've got the book, you've got the website, practical golf, the podcast, um, and you refer to yourself as a, a player coach. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is and, and what your kind of unique take is on helping golfers? Sure. So to briefly explain, I guess, how I'm different than the, than the rest of the golfing world is about nine-ish years ago, I got an idea that I could offer different slash better online golf advice. Uh, I was a decent junior player, you know, didn't play much in my 20s and got bit back into golf. Uh when I was around 30 and got very good quickly again. And I started to unravel a lot of the mistakes I made when I was younger. And I felt that I had something to offer uh, from a player's perspective. I think, you know, growing up and then watching how the online golf world had evolved, it was all about the technical elements of the golf swing. And that every golfer thought, well, if I would need to get better, I need to focus on my technique. And I felt there was a bit of an overdose of that. Um, not that there's not great information out there. There's plenty of awesome swing instructors on YouTube. I'm friends with a lot of them. But I just felt, well, there's a lot of other stuff that I've gotten better at and learned that I can share with people. And I, I wrote a lot for years on my website, Practical Golf. And eventually, a lot of those ideas turned into the book, which I released about a year and a half ago. And essentially, what I try and do is... I communicate from a player's perspective on essentially four main topics, expectation management, uh, strategy, how to practice effectively, and, and my version of the mental game. And yeah, that's my perspective. I'm a golfer. Um, I, I can play at a pretty high level. You know, my, my handicap is a plus two right now. Um, I just got finished playing at the U.S. Mid-Am. And, and to be quite honest with you, that was literally impossible for me to even conceive of a decade ago. So I've gotten my game to a place where I figured out some stuff. I've learned a lot from other people and I try and communicate all these mini lessons to golfers of all levels to mainly make them happier. <laughs> Most importantly, I want everyone to be happy and enjoy their golf because I didn't for a long time. And my second rallying calls, I want to lower your handicap too. So that that's what I try and do with my own kind of, different way of explaining things well and, and i like that you say that because i think one of my big takeaways from the book is that it's very versatile in the different levels and and uh, different parts of the journey where golfers are can relate to this because your better golfers who are looking to win some more tournaments i think can pull some stuff from this but more importantly like the golfers like myself you know i feel like we've are 98% of the golfing population, which we're just out there to have some fun. But yep. the reality is somewhere along the way, we do tie our performance to fun. 
You know, I, I think about, <laughs> yeah, yes. right. I mean, we, we just like, we start off, we're just like, Hey, we, we get our hooks and you know, our hooks get into the game because it's so much fun, but then we start to take it more seriously and we start to get a little bit harder on ourselves where I see that even for myself is I put a lot of emotional eggs into my basket when I have like a golf trip planned, you know, maybe once a year I get to get away with like my friends for like four or five days to play golf and we'll stack six, seven rounds. And I, I get nervous about how I'm going to play. And if I don't play well, I start to get frustrated and I worry like, what am I really out here for? I'm out here to enjoy the game. And you've got a kind of a unique take on this, on your kind of this happiness equation. And I think it, it definitely relieved a little bit of that burden for me. So I wanted you to, to share a little bit of your take on that. Yeah, I think, you know, now that the book's been out for a while and I've gotten a lot of feedback, I think the first section, the expectation management section and the happiness equation is part of that. That's where I think it's had the most profound effect on people because my belief is that if you can't get your expectations in line and enjoy your golf, you have no chance of getting better. And I fought against this for many, many years. I was a miserable player where I would look I would look at my rounds as like this litmus test. Like I'm either going to score well, and if I don't, I'm not having a good time. And that's a horrible way to, to play this game and to enjoy this game. And you know, whether you're looking forward to your round all week when you're at work and you're like, I'm playing Saturday morning with my buddies, I want to beat them. Or, or like you said, you have a, you have a trip coming up. Um, unfortunately, what we do is we, we kind of build this like, you know, reality or this is this story we want to live up to. And when we get on the golf course, things are obviously a lot messier than that. They never go according to plan. And I think a lot of players struggle when it starts deviating from that kind of fantasy we had and then you're left with the reality of golf, which is this highly variable, frustrating, and things can change on a dime type of game. And that's where we get upset and frustrated. So, you know, one of the things that I try and help everyone achieve in their happiness equation, and it's different for every golfer, is that can we line up our expectations to our skill level and preparation? Because I believe we're at our worst when they're totally out of whack. So for me, for example, in my 20s, I was a decent junior golfer. I didn't play much in my 20s. I lived in New York City, but I thought, oh, I can go out there and shoot a 75 still. And the second I felt that score slipping away, I would lose my mind because my expectations were way out of line with my current skill level. I wasn't playing much. I wasn't practicing much. Therefore, I was not entitled to those scores. And for years, I, I essentially fought against myself and didn't really enjoy golf because of that. Uh, that equation was so out of balance. And I, I try and get every golfer to reflect on this because everyone's situation is different. Some people can only play once a month. Some people get to play four times a week. Um, we have work obligations. We have family obligations. You know, the budget might not be there. So I get everyone to look at their situation and reflect on it and say, can we take a step back and, and think about what we want out of this game? And more importantly, when we get on the course, when, when we're in the heat of the battle, can you take a second to like take a deep breath and being like, okay, I am out here for fun. I just made a triple bogey. You know, that, that happened. Okay. You know, the day's not shot. I'm still out with my buddies. It's beautiful out. Um, can we make sure that at the minimum we're going to enjoy the experience uh, and be grateful that we get to play? So I, I find a lot of different ways to explain these concepts to people, whether it's my own personal stories of embarrassment, sharing statistics of shot outcomes and handicap levels, um, but I think this is legitimately the most important part of the game to get right, because nothing else will work if you don't manage your expectations properly. 
Yeah, and I, I think as I was digging into the book and I'm saying, okay, so that, that had a comfort level there of saying, I can still be out there and have fun. I'm not winning or losing any money in this round. You know, it does, that doesn't matter. But I think for me that what started to really validate that statement was when you started to break down specifically certain things, certain parts of the game that set expectations of, and, and made me realize why my expectations were not properly aligned. One perfect example of that, I, I, and I want to have you expand on it here, talking about how watching the PGA Tour broadcast and spe- broadcast golf specifically kind of sets you up for failure when it comes to expectations. And what I mean by that is I, I'm the type of guy where I have a, a, a hot streak and I'm playing pretty well, you know, and, I, and I'm shooting high 70 scores and I'm thinking, you know, fantastic. And then out of nowhere, I'll shoot a score in the 90s. And what ultimately happens with that is I start second guessing that I never deserved to shoot those 70 scores in the first place. <laughs> the demon showing up. <laughs> yep. I start looking online for what I can change or what I can do and all this stuff because I, I think of that pendulum swinging so far made me feel like this just shouldn't be right. You shouldn't have this much variability in, in a sport, but you talk about it, how, you know, on Sunday at the PGA tour, we only see the guys who made the cut. We only see the guys who are playing the very best that week. And we're only seeing the best shots from the best guys. So take us through that a little bit, because I I feel like our listeners can hopefully benefit from that as much as I did the reality of the variability of scores in this game and and what is truly acceptable? Yeah, I I think, you know, my belief is, is that, you know, most avid golfers are going to watch professional golf on TV. It's just what we do. Um, It's exciting to watch the best in the world compete. And unfortunately, the way the broadcasts are set up is that they are presenting a version of golf that technically doesn't even exist. And we kind of watch this, and I've been watching since I'm, you know, eight years old. I'm 40 now, so that's many years. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's largely, I don't say it's completely responsible for mismanaged expectations, but I think it's a big part of it because, as you said, the broadcasts are there to entertain us. And we're left with kind of like this confirmation bias of every week, you know, 150, 170 players are teeing it up. And we're going to be shown the best shots in the in Thursday and Friday rounds. Go look, go look on the PGA Tour or any other tour, LPGA Tour. I don't care what professional tour. Go look at every single leaderboard at the bottom. You're going to see a lot of 78s, 79s, 76s. Um, these are plus 7, plus 8 handicaps. I mean, they're just ungodly good. Um, but we're not being shown that we're being shown a highlight reel, the, the 25 footers going in the, the, the escape shots out of the trees, these miraculous short game shots, perfect drives. And then eventually as the tournament winds down, we're going to be focusing on those 10 players who are playing the best. Um, so actually the, a great exercise now is watching like ESPN plus or the PGA tour live coverage. If you get to watch a featured group on like Thursday and you watch someone shoot like a 77 or something, you can see them struggling. Like they're not hitting like a lot of errant drives are spending a lot of time in the rough They're three putting. It's not the same version of golf we're seeing on TV. And to get to your point about you shooting in the high seventies and nineties, that is a very normal range of scores. And I think golfers at your level are often the most tortured because they can taste the mountaintop of shooting the seventies, but they're also going to shoot in the nineties too. 
Yeah, the mid-handicap, the mid-single-digit handicap, I actually think is the most tortured golfer, in my opinion, because they're stuck between these two worlds, so to speak. Um, but again, look at a PGA Tour player I put in the book. I think it was Richie Warinsky. You look at just some random guy, 120th in the world, made $2 million, whatever he is. He's going to have some 63s, some 64s. He's also going to have some 78s, 80s, and 81s. He had a round, I think, uh, he went 65 and then in the high 70s. The game is just as mystifying to them. And if you listen to their post-round interviews, they get just as shocked too. You'll be like, I played yesterday. I was lights out. Today, I had no clue what I was doing. These are the best in the world. So for the rest of us, I think we need to think a little bit more critically about what's going on at the professional level and understand that if you're watching on TV, it's not educational. It's entertainment purposes. Do not take your cues from what you're seeing because it is real in the sense that they are hitting the shots, but they have hundreds of balls to choose from that are in the air and the producers are just popping around to all the good ones usually. Um, and I think it does a lot of damage to, you know, the, the, the level or the version of golf that people aspire to because it doesn't exist. Yeah. And I think when it was seeing those hard numbers in the book in front of me is what really clicked when I thought, <laughs> yeah. wait a minute, <laughs> if, if a PGA tour player can shoot 63, you know, one day and then maybe shoot 83 and miss the cut, that's a 20 shot swing. That's yeah. exactly everyone's what got a 20 with. shots. Yeah. Everyone's right. got 20, 30, 40, 40 shot swing. No question. I just love that because I think it gives us a little bit, takes a little bit of that weight off our shoulders to say, Hey, when the bad rounds happen, in, instead of doing what I do and using that as the wormhole to then, you know, invalidate my, my other strides in the game, you know, that that's, that's an important takeaway for me. So I, I'm glad we got to talk about it. <laughs> the other one that I wanted to chat about, because this is honestly how I, I first discovered uh, your content. It was actually on Instagram, and it was you explaining the two-thirds rule. And the mm. two-thirds rule was the reason I went out and got this book. Because I'm like, wait, this is, this is something I've, I've heard a lot of golf explain. You know, I've been doing a golf podcast for almost 10 years. I've heard a lot of golf explained. I've never heard this interesting take on it. So I want to have you explain the two-thirds rule. Um, because, as, again, I think this also helps dispel a certain degree of what we see on tour versus what we believe. Because for me... I always think if a guy's winning or something, he, you know, they're firing on all cylinders. Every part of their game is working. But then I think, you know, I, I've been a longtime Tiger Woods fan. I remember the, the, the interviews of Tiger always finding a way to win, even when he didn't have his best stuff. So I think it kind of relates to this. So can you take us through that two-thirds rule and what it means? Sure. So it's funny. I, I, the seven or eight years of writing articles and tweets and, and podcasting leading up to the book, I came up with all these ideas, and this was one of my earliest articles. I think it was in 2016 I wrote it, and for whatever reason, it just resonated with people, and obviously, I put it in the book, and it's, it's like you mentioned, it's one of the concepts that people came away with, and they're like, oh, that was helpful. So long story short, um, I, I've gotten to a pretty good level of golf, and I've been around a lot of great golfers, and, I, and I'm going to exclude tour players from this for a second. Um. I've been able to compete in some, I just competed in one of the top amateur tournaments in the world around some great golfers. I still have never seen someone do everything perfectly and shoot a great score. And what I mean by that is I divide the game up into three phases for simplicity, tee shots, approach shots, and anything that's incurring inside of a hundred yards. So that could be obviously wedges and putting. Um, I don't think I've ever, I've seen people shoot 
63s, 64s. I shot a couple of 64s the other year. I've never seen anyone do all three phases of the game above average, meaning they're firing on all cylinders. The best I've seen is two out of three going really well and then managing the other part that was kind of like not as great. Um, so last year, I I shot a 64 at my home course, which is St. George's on Long Island. And I didn't drive it that well, to be quite honest with you. I just was, my irons were so on and I just, I had great proximity to the hole. I made a ton of putts, but if I was being honest with you, I wasn't really hitting my driver squarely on the face. I just kind of managed my driver. Um, I've had other rounds where I striped my driver and, you know, I couldn't make a putt, but I still put up a good score. So the point of the two thirds rule is let's alleviate the, the, expectation that you're going to go out on the golf course and everything's going to feel comfortable because it will not at minimum one part of your game is going to be a struggle and i believe you any a player of any level can shoot their best scores when two out of three of those parts of the game are going very well and the other one's kind of a struggle Um, but more importantly when we shift to like one out of three days where like two parts of your game are a struggle that's where i think like that's where I try and give people all of the coaching tools, picking smart targets, you know, grit, uh, routines, like all the things I discuss in the book to help everyone manage their game when things aren't going well. I think the one out of three days are the most typical. And my real goal for everyone is not to eliminate. I hate the word eliminate in golf. I want to mitigate or lessen the zero out of three days where you just kind of like give up and you just kind of throw in the towel and nothing's going right. And, and it's just a train wreck. Um, So I think most quote unquote good or okay golf can be played in that one out of three to two out of three zone and just forget about stepping on the course and saying like, well, everything's going to go great. And the second I hit a drive out of bounds or I chunk a chip or a three putt, you're like, oh, here we go again. And then that's where, you know, that, that negative mental loop starts and we really start to struggle. So if I can alleviate that mental burden that a lot of golfers step on the course with, like that's the messages I get. I'm like, your book has helped like remove that burden. I'm more comfortable with myself. I'm more forgiving of myself when I hit these shots because I know they're coming and it's not a surprise to me anymore. I'm not going to let them get me down. So yeah, that, that is, that's the two thirds rule in a nutshell is like, you just don't need to be firing on all cylinders to play your best golf. It is such a relief truly to hear <laughs> because you know, we think of ga- the game as being so hard and so difficult and you feel like you need everything working to shoot, you know, yep. the, the low score you want to shoot that day. And being able to give yourself that leeway of saying, you know, I'm not driving the ball well today, but I, you know, my other two, two of the three is pretty good. And then being able to use that as the confidence builder, because we know how much of the game is confidence. And I think that that was always what was destroying my confidence was that if just one part wasn't working, I lumped it in with everything. So, yep. so hearing that for me was, was a, was an important one. That's for sure. Um, Another thing, like we, it's just funny. Like as I'm going through your book, it just feels like it's just dispelling a lot of common things we've heard forever. So, and I know, like I said, there's too much to cover in, in one podcast, so we're gonna jump around a little bit. But the other one that that just kind of jumped off the page at me was this idea. We throw this this around all the time. The same verbiage where we say like a 300 yard drive is the same as a one foot putt on the scorecard, right? <laughs> and Sometimes I think a lot of stuff we just say just because we've heard it a million times and it just sounds right sure. on the surface. And if you think about it, yeah, sure, a stroke is a stroke. 
but you have a very yep. interesting way of kind of approaching this and saying that's just not the reality. Uh, and now we live in a world where strokes gained is something that is much more approachable to the everyday golfer. There's a lot of great um, devices and things like that that can take the heavy lifting of calculating that off of us. I've, I've used ShotScope for years. I know there's, there's other ones out there, but tell us a little bit of, about why that is that that 300 yard drive and that one foot putt technically really don't count the same when it comes to your score. Yeah, I mean, I have to give full credit to my friend Mark Brody, who is, you know, the inventor of the strokes gain statistic, the author of the wonderful book, Every Shot Counts, which I think is required reading for all golfers who want to get better. I've cited it many times in my book. Um, but the concept that I grew up with was, yeah, we were, you know, before we had access to advanced analytics and, and not as deep of an understanding of how scoring occurred, you know, we were told, you know, as junior golfers, you know, be safe off the tee. It's all about your short game. Like all the scoring occurs inside of 100 yards. And Mark kind of flipped that on its head with his analysis, which is, you know, it's not debatable anymore. There, there's no argument there. People can argue about it if they want, but I think they're just kind of wasting time in their day. Um, essentially, what Mark found was that, you know, the difference between golfers of all levels, two thirds of that can be explained by your tee shots and approach shots. And approach shots are the part of the game where players separate the most. That is where scoring occurs. So your irons are technically your scoring clubs. Uh, but what you said is, you know, we always said like, oh, that one foot putt is just as important as the 300 yard drive. In absolute terms, of course, that's correct. But in relative terms, and what's more important to understand about scoring, that is so far from the truth because you're never going to hit that one foot putt out of bounds. You're not going to top it and hit it 50 yards backwards into a bunker. The amount of damage you can inflict on your game off the tee is massive. You can lose two strokes right off the bat with, a, with out of bounds and you're still not done. Um, so I think one of the things I discuss in the book and I try to explain some of Mark's findings in a different way is that as you get further away from the hole, you have more of an opportunity to separate from other golfers. And a perfect example I can give is that I'm a plus two handicap. If you put me in a putting contest with a 30 handicap from 20 feet, you're not going to see much difference in our game. We're both going to two putt a lot. Maybe I'll make a few, maybe they'll three putt a few, but you're not going to be able to tell how much better I am than that golfer. Um, if we had a chipping contest, granted, I'm not the best chipper in the world. Um, maybe you'd start to see the difference, but as you get further away from the hole, you put us at 150 yards. I'm going to hit a ton of greens. That 30 handicap is going to be topping it, chunking it. The, the amount of damage they can do to their game is far different. And then you put us on the tee. I'm going to be hitting 280, 300, they're going to be topping a few. And you could say the same from a tour player and me. The further you get away from the hole, the more you can separate in your skills. And that's not to say that putting isn't important. It's incredibly important. It's just so difficult that it's harder to separate from other golfers. Like you can't outperform someone so much on the greens that's going to lead to 10 strokes in your handicap. But you can with your irons and your driver. And there's a lot of different directions we can go on in this with strategy and practice and where you're putting time in your game. We don't have time for that, but that is a, I, I think a profound realization of how scoring occurs is that, you know, the further away you get away from the hole, the more relative influence each shot has because you can do more damage or create more good on those shots. That 300 yard drive is incredible, 
But, you know, a three-foot putt, all of us are mostly going to make that. You can't separate that much from that distance. All right, we'll get you right back to our interview with John Sherman in just a second, but want to take a moment to thank this week's sponsor, Titleist. And, guys, the new Titleist irons have enhanced feel, improved turf interaction. They're more consistent uh, with their look for transitions between blended sets. Speaking of which, Mike, I ended up in a recent fitting in an incredible blended set, and I don't think I've ever had a set that was more cohesive than this. Mike's fitting experience was just incredible. And I really tested every model. You've got the T100s, T150s, T200s, even the 350s. Trust me, it benefits you. Even though you may have a preconceived notion in your mind of which one is going to be best for you, it benefits you to really go out there and try them all. And the evidence of that was that I ended up in such a blended set. I've got the T150s in there, the T200s, and even through a T354 iron in there, which gave me that little extra ball speed on a club that, for my skill level, is a little bit more difficult to hit. So I'm able to get a little bit more out of it. And, you know, really when it comes down to is Titleist putting an emphasis on improving those 3D numbers. Mm -hmm. What we really care about, distance, dispersion, and what we recently learned about, angle of descent, how important that is holding those greens, especially front pins. It really goes more so from just a distance club to a scoring club and putting those scoring clubs in your bag. So there's just so much out there in the T-Series lineup that you need to explore, but really the best way to do that is going and getting a fitting. So go to Titleist.com to learn more about the T-Series iron and make sure you schedule your fitting. Go out there, try them all, and see what works best for your game. Okay, guys. Season's changing. It's getting a little cooler out. Rain is coming through. It's fall. But fall golf is one of my favorite seasons to play golf. I absolutely love it. But you got to be prepared for the elements. So check out FootJoy's new Hydro Tour lineup, their collection of outerwear. Um, Guys, this stuff is great. It's designed to withstand the most extreme weather conditions. I mean, we've tested it pretty much with all <laughs> we're laughing because we did something fun well you guys will have to wait and see um, but if you're play, playing in places like Bandon dunes or cabot links where the wind is whipping and rain is whipping you're going to need hydro tour i promise you you're going to need it it features a double collar that keeps the rain out no matter what direction it's coming in how smart is that it's pretty cool it keeps you warm it keeps you dry it keeps you comfortable those are all the things you need to have fun and to play successful golf. Um, there's also, I want to mention the Hydro Knit. So if you're playing in places like Torrey Pines or Sand Valley, you're going to need Hydro Knit. It feels like a mid-layer, but it protects like a rain jacket. It's stretchable, waterproof, breathable. And guys, for these trips, it's so easily packable. It just folds up to basically nothing. You shove it in your bag, golf bag, uh, travel bag, whatever the case may be. Check out the entire lineup of the Hydro Tour at footjoy.com and go pick yourself up some of them today. All right, let's get back to it with John. You in the book, you break it down with the numbers and the strokes gain differences for the the different skill levels. And I was astonished to see really how close it was in the difference in total strokes uh, for, let's say, a 10-foot putt versus a 200-yard approach shot. It was vastly different. So I know we can't get into all aspects of it because the book goes on for multiple chapters like we say picking targets and things like that but i think one question that comes up often especially when you're talking about the the true recreational game because we're so many of us are are really limited on time we can't get out there that much but like i said we want to achieve a level of play that that be able to match that that balance of enjoyment there's a certain level you want to be able to play at to keep pace with your buddies or whatever it may be yeah so how do we find the balance of how much to practice? And specifically, another thing in the book that I liked was creating this balance between the practice facility, the range, 
and the course because it's like this catch-22. Like if we're not playing well, we're like, how can we expect to play well? We're not putting enough time on, on the range. Then we put a ton of time on the range and forego a little bit of time on the course. And then we get to the course. We're like, sure. Why is my game not translating from the range to the course? So what's the balance? it's different for every player because again, I, I can't, there's I'm over 65 million golfers on, on the earth. And hopefully I think that number has been growing recently, which is awesome. And everyone's got a different situation. Um, so someone who's further along in their skill development, like me, like I don't need to practice as much as I did 15 years ago. I need to play more to keep my game sharp. Um, but if you took a beginner, I would say, okay, we probably need to get you some swing lessons and start getting some patterns that are more functional uh, if you have the budget for that um, and maybe put in some more practice time before we get you out on the course. Um, so everyone needs to find the balance. But I think where a lot of golfers fall into trouble is in extremes. So in the book, I talked about a few different scenarios. So there's some golfers who love to practice. They love to go to the range and beat balls. And they play maybe once or twice a month and they're like, well, what the hell is this? You know, I was striping it on the range. I went through my bucket, everything looked great. And now I'm on the golf course and it's a total mess. And my answer to that problem is that a ton of learning occurs on the golf course. If you want to get better at golf, like you need to be playing enough. Like there's so many distractions and pressure, selecting targets. Like there's all these things that occur on the course that you need to deal with and learn from and then use that feedback in your practice sessions to get better. And I do give detailed advice on how to do that in the book. Um, so not everyone can do this perfectly, but if you can't, I want you to be at peace with it. So if you are a golfer who has time to practice, but just it's not in the cards for you to play a lot, you need to lower your expectations. If you're playing once a month, 12 times a year, I don't think that's enough to say like, oh, I want to go to a 15 handicap down to an eight. I would say that's going to be much harder unless you're some type of like athletic freak. Um, so, I, it, you know, I want people to realize the limitations they have in their life because we're not, <laughs> we, you know, no one does this for a living other than the pros, obviously. Um, and then the, the reverse of that is, you know, there's a player who just only plays and never practices. And they're not taking those nuggets of gold, that feedback on the course and going to the practice facility and saying, you know what, that was making me uncomfortable, that 70-yard wedge shot or my driver where I was three-putting a lot. Taking the time to put some targeted smart work on those parts of the game that make you uncomfortable, like that's how you start getting some quick wins and getting better. So the ideal situation is that we're playing enough maybe once a week, I think is a reasonable goal for a lot of players, like three times a month. And then maybe you can practice one time a week and use the feedback that you're seeing in those rounds to make those practice sessions more efficient. Um, again, hard to do for everyone. I know everyone's situation is different, but just try and I always call it the feedback loop between playing and practicing and, and using that as best you can. But if you fall into extremes in one direction, I, I think the game gets harder. Um, but if I had to pick one direction, I'd rather actually be people be playing more. Um, that would be, you know, you just can't simulate what happens in a round of golf. Like there's just so many things that occur mentally, strategically, um, reacting to shots. Like there's a lot of learning that goes on there. And more importantly, the, the reflection afterwards that I want people to do. So yeah, I'm not a range rat. I don't practice for three hours at a time. I maybe spend 30, 40 minutes do my work and then I go play. Right. And, and I think too, the more efficient we can be, the better. And I think what has been a huge takeaway for me in reading the book 
is really fully understanding what the expectations are. Again, I can't got to keep coming back to this because it's when I see it's it. It's all about it. <laughs> right? Because yeah. I, I think uh, for a perfect example might be 100 yards out and I've got a wedge in my hand. And I'm, what do I go back to? I'm thinking like the PGA Tour. And that's where I see the best golfers. And everything is a highlight reel. And everything is a foot from the hole. Right? So something slips into my mind that if I'm if I'm putting my wedges to 10 to 15 feet, I'm thinking there's something wrong. This is what separates yeah. <laughs> the best golfers, right? I should be yep. on the range and just working on that. Meanwhile, foregoing other areas of my game where there's a much wider relative dispersion. I think by you putting in the book and showing that is the best of the, the best shots from the best golfers on their best day. By seeing yep. the real numbers across all whatever level it is. The reality is no one's sticking it that close on a regular basis. And at that point, I'm almost chasing my tail with my practice time. And then that's when I realized, hey, a little bit more time spent on my longer approach shots, on my tee shots, is actually where my time is more wisely spent. So that's something, like you said before, we can't get into today. There's just too much here in the book. But it's the reason why I would encourage people to go and check it out because it, it really is, it was those numbers that, turned a light bulb on in in my mind and i it seems like i'm not even all the way through it i'm about three quarters of the way it seems like you've got an endless supply of those type of uh those numbers and it's just fascinating to me yeah well thanks to our friends at ShotScope, they gave me access to their database to show you know what what was the proximity for different handicap levels and that was a real eye-opener for a lot of people to say hey you know, a scratch golfer is hitting it to 60 feet away, you know, with a seven iron in their hand. They're like, oh, wait, that's a, you know, if I hit it near the green with an easy chip shot, that's actually a good shot for me. So um, I, I think showing the data and using, you know, strokes gained and the apps like ShotScope to see the truth in your game and where you should spend your practice time more efficiently. A lot of people will see, as you said, on those longer approach shot and driver uh, versus kind of banging away on your wedges sometimes. Um, that's the efficient way to get to the answers quickly. And like, how do I reduce my handicap? And you can see it clearly, you see where you're deficient, and then you can spend more time there. Um, but yeah, I think showing people like the cold, hard data is so eye-opening. It's good for target selection. It's good for expectation management. And it's good for how you spend your practice time. So I'm glad you enjoyed that part of the book. I, I just like, I've always been a fan of the data. I think it's been, a, it's been revolutionizing a lot of the equipment side of things as, as more uh, regular golfers become, have access to things like fittings and being put in front of a launch monitor. And, and now we're not guessing how far we hit it or what Absolutely. our dispersion is. Yep. But being able to use that for actually your your game itself and, again, comparing it to those expectations. Because, again, just in that one example, if I'm thinking my my 7-iron, you know, I'm hitting it 60 feet from the pin every time. I need to be closer because that's what I see the guys on tour doing. The reality is no, like that that's that's acceptable. There might be somewhere else that I need a little bit more work. So, uh, like I said, eye-opening in a lot of ways. And, uh, John, appreciate you taking the time to come on the, the podcast today. And uh, I would encourage anybody go and check out the book and and tell us too where they can find you know some of the other information about you the podcast and things like that. Sure. So I co-host a podcast called The Sweet Spot um, with another friend of mine who's also a golf coach named Adam Young. 
Um, so yeah, I, I, we talk a lot about practice methods, strat- a lot of the stuff that's in the book, Adam's got amazing info too. So you can check out the sweet spot. Um, my main website, practical golf, uh, whenever this airs, it's, it's relaunching in the next month or so after a couple of years of getting a new facelift and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, you can, uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter is really my main channel. I'm glad you found me on Instagram cause I actually started putting some effort in there. Um, but you can find me anywhere at practical golf. Um, and yeah, the book, you know, I wrote the book so that a golfer of any level can pick it up. There's hundreds of ideas in there. I'm only looking for you to get two or three of them that can have a meaningful impact on your game. Um, so I wrote it for a golfer of any level. Unfortunately, it has, uh, I'm about to cross the 60,000 copy sold mark, which is mind blowing to me. It's just been so awesome the last year and a half, like hearing from golfers around the world who've listened to it or read it. Um, so you can check it out. It's on Amazon. Just search for Foundations of Golf, and uh, that's where you can find me. And and, and appreciate you guys uh, inviting me on and, and sharing a little bit of info from it. Absolutely, we'll we'll link to that in the show notes as well. But like I said, from that moment I came across that two two thirds rule, I said, "There's something here. <laughs> hooked you. I need more. <laughs> I'm hooked, and uh, I appreciate it. And that's why I reached out to get you on the show. And I'm so glad to have you here. So, John, thank you again for everything, and uh, we appreciate all the insight and advice. All right, great. Thanks again.